0: In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and set it before them and set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who'd eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away and immediately got into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dal Manutha. Okay, so this is the opening scene, if you will, that we get on the text tonight, where Jesus has fed the 4,000. We saw a couple weeks ago how he fed the 5,000, and of course it's supernatural. He supernaturally multiplied the bread and the fish. He did it twice. As we go forward in the text tonight, we'll get a little more into what he was trying to teach the apostles from this. It's noteworthy. Uh, the region that they're at, it is the, the northwest region of the, the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of up from what is modern Tiberias and, or Capernaum is. So it's just kind of up on that left side of the Sea of Galilee is this, this community called Dao Manathua. That's where they were at in that region. And he performed this miracle. It's the second time he feeds thousands of people supernaturally. Different crowd, though maybe some people are in both crowds, but it's a different Record for us, so we need to understand that. What's interesting to me is in the first feeding of the five thousand men, more than five thousand, but it says men, five thousand, and so you could figure out how many more it really is with children and women, uh, women and children. But the first time he fed supernaturally, there was twelve baskets, and you can't miss the detail of twelve. You know, there's twelve tribes of Israel, there's twelve apostles, twelve is very specific. There's twelve months in the in the calendar year that God's designed for us as He set up His universe. So. With those 12 baskets, you just got to believe, especially from my perspective as a pastor, that each basket was for an apostle. Or at least, at the very least, you have 12 apostles standing there going like, wow, that was kind of random. And there's 12 baskets like, hmm, you know, like, Wait, let's count each other, 12, 12 baskets. There's certainly a link in the numbers between the apostles and the 12 baskets. And perhaps the lesson is God's able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20 says that, that whole idea that God can do the supernatural. Interestingly enough, when I taught that text on the 5,000 a few weeks ago, my wife was really excited about that text. Like she, that just really spoke to her that night as we're going chapter by chapter through Mark. And she said, she's like, what do you got? like, that's what Jesus said, what do you have, like, she's like, she's like a rapper, he's like, so what do you got, you know, it's like Toby Mac style, like, what do you got, because she's that generation, we're that generation, but like, she just thought it'd be a great song, like, what do you got, because, remember, Philip came to Jesus and said, hey, send him, send him away, we can't feed him, and Jesus was like, you feed him, well, it's beyond Philip to do that, Philip's like, how can we do that, all year's wage couldn't feed all these people, and what did Jesus say, what do you got, so it's really the availability of what we have, of ourselves and our resources as to what God can break and multiply to do something supernatural. Well, believe that really is the lesson from a few weeks ago. And as we come forward tonight in the feeding of the 4,000, now you get seven loaves of bread and seven baskets. So there's a similarity. It's like, okay, again, so presuming like some are sharper than others and some might be a little slower than others, but still everyone's like, hmm, seven loaves, seven baskets right? The numbers match up. Like if you've just had even seven loaves and eight baskets, you'd be like, oh, it doesn't mean anything. But 12 and 12, and then seven and seven, those numbers, they tell us Jesus is doing something there to teach lessons. And again, I think the lesson is pretty much the same, that you bring seven loaves, he'll give you seven baskets, right? All you have to do is think of in the Old Testament with Isaac, the, the son of uh, Abraham, the son of promise around 2000 B.C., that after Abraham, the father of faith, died, who God made all those promises, Isaac inherited everything, and, and he dug wells in the land, and there was conflict with everybody. There was the well of contention, the well of quarreling or strife, and then there's the well of spaciousness. And there in the book of Genesis, we're told that at the well of spaciousness that he came, it was called the well of spaciousness. He called it that because now I have found my place. And it says that he began to prosper, and the Lord prospered him, and he prospered a hundredfold in the land. There's a couple of verses clustered together. I believe it's chapter 26 of Genesis, where he exponentially multiplied. And throughout the Bible, we see that that so often it's about just availability and faith where God meets our availability and meets our faith, and he multiplies what he's doing in our life and through our life. And let's just agree for a moment here. Don't we want Jesus Christ in 2019 to multiply the good things of what he's doing in our life, in us personally? And don't we want him to multiply what he's doing through us collectively, corporately? I mean, if we we woke up this morning and said, Lord, like the prayer of Jabez, multiply your character and your fruit and your spirit in my life. Here I am. What do I got? This is what I got. It's me. Multiply. That's a really wise prayer. And then if you say, Lord, these are the different ministries we're involved in, we're trying to do, Uh, supper together, whatever, worship generation, praying for Brian Broderson, Calvary, Costa Mesa, Vero Beach, all the different things. And Lord, wouldn't it be a great prayer to say, Lord, multiply what you're doing through my life. What you're doing through my life it's a good prayer and the seven loaves with seven baskets tells us that our god is the god of multiplication and you get that in the book of acts too in the book of acts in the early church in the new testament we see where god adds to the church and then interestingly enough he subtracts from the church sometimes you gotta two steps forward one step back and then he multiplies in the church So to me, there's just a wonderful application that when we're moved with compassion, because Jesus was moved with compassion, we saw that at the beginning of the text. When we care about other people, when we really are sincerely seeking the Lord, and then if we're doing that, we're going to sincerely have the heart of the Lord for people, and he was moved with compassion. That's what moved him in feeding the 4,000 was his heart of compassion for humanity and the people. They're not all going to walk with the Lord. They're not going to receive him as the Messiah. They're not all going to rejoice in the day of Pentecost. Some of these people might even attack Christians later on down the road. Still, though, the good, the bad, and the ugly in the human experience, Jesus is still moved with compassion on humanity. That's why I went to the cross. So I just want to encourage us to look for multiplication from the Lord in our lives. If he takes one loaf of bread and makes a basket from it for each loaf, that should encourage our faith that, again, it's about our heart, our availability, and our expectations of who we serve and what he does. So again, I move on with Ephesians 3:20. God is able to do exceedingly above and beyond all that we could think or ask in his church. That's a good word. Now we read on verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he that is Jesus' sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So now they're moving on from this and this is kind of a transition passage. It's going to set up the lessons and the questions and the subsequent verses after this, but I I don't want to miss again here verse 11 through 15. And we talked about this last week when those religious leaders went 60 miles to find fault with Jesus. And listen, you don't have to go 60 miles. You can, you know, you can find fault with anyone or anything if you really want to, right? And And again, we want to be people who look for the best in people. We look for the potential in people. We're not afraid to say what needs to be said to encourage people. We want to be motivated, like, hey, I'm saying this for you. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, faithful of the wounds of a friend and deceitful of the kisses of an enemy. And open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And sometimes that's part of it. But still, though, we want to see the potential. We want to look at people and see the potential of, of what they can be in their fullest. Now, here's the tricky part. And of all things, I listened to a Billy Graham message today. It was Billy Graham day with Joey. I sit down with Billy Graham once a week, at least, and listen to a Billy message. And, you know, Billy has certain passages he loved. He loved to teach on the second coming, the days of Noah. I mean, you Google Billy Graham Crusades on YouTube, half of them are Billy teaching on the days of Noah because he, he loved to teach the second coming. But interestingly enough, today's message from Nashville, Tennessee, 1975, he was teaching on the conscience and a seared conscience, and he was teaching on Herod the Tetrarch. And since we just talked about Herod the Tetrarch, I found it very interesting. And in, even on Saturday night, we just covered Herod the Tetrarch when Pilate sent Jesus to Herod the Tetrarch on that last day before he went to the cross. So Herod the Tetrarch has been on my mind. Herod being a ruler, Tetrarch meaning ruler of a fourth. So he's the grandson of Herod the Great that killed all the babies, you know, two generations before that. But here is Herod the Tetrarch again. And look what Jesus says. Beware of the leaven of Herod. And the Pharisees, two groups. Now you didn't, so it's interesting to me, the Pharisees, again, they're the ones that came to find fault last week. They went 60 miles. Well, it's a round trip of 120 to go find fault. Okay, that's, a, that's incredible. You're walking. That's like the California missions, right? They're 30 miles apart. They they go from the San Diego mission to the Oceanside mission to San Juan Capistrano to find fault and then turn around and go back, right? It's like, who would do that? So, but the Pharisees... They were religious, and they rejected the grace and the relationship that God offered through his son, Jesus Christ. We know that. Jesus said concerning them that they committed the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. So they resisted the Holy Spirit, the signs that the Holy Spirit did through Jesus, and in resisting the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ, there was no way they could be saved. They were dead in their sins and trespasses, though they sought to justify themselves before God through self-righteousness. I think most of you know that, but we need to make that very clear so Jesus here that these men came to dispute like I just life is so short who's got time to wake up and just look for a dispute especially when you're wrong that's why Luke didn't want to be a lawyer you know my son Luke when he went to college he was going to be a lawyer and then he decided like he wins all these arguments he does debate team at OCC and all these things it's like man I just don't know if I want my life to be disputing like criminal court or whatever and and it's like well I understand that and Who wants to wake up and be with disputes every day? We want to live a peaceful, happy life, as 1 Thessalonians says. You know, like, pay your taxes, love your neighbor, and try and avoid war, right? You know, like, and and foolish personal decisions. These guys, this is what religion does. You just, when it's you and it's your self-righteousness and you're justifying yourself, and someone's filled with grace and the truth, you just, you attack them. And this is what religion has done in the human experience from the dawn of creation. Cain killing Abel. This is what religion does. And there's something where we cross a line with religion where we, well, it would imply that it seem you can't come back. And that's what Billy Graham was teaching on when I was listening to him about Herod the Tetrarch. Because when Herod heard of Jesus, he said, this is John the Baptist, come back. Now, that's really faulty logic for a strong political leader, right? It's like, who, you know, he's out of his mind. It's like, you killed Herod. You cut his head off, right? When Salome danced for you and you were filled with lust and you're drinking, you're foolish, you said, I'll give you anything. And instead of asking for beachfront property on the Sea of Galilee, she asked for the head of John the Baptist, and you took his head, and you felt bad. Like, you, you liked John. You didn't like his message, but you actually liked the guy. The Bible tells us that Herod liked John, and he'd listen to him and have discussions with him, like intelligent conversations. He's the prison warden. John's a prisoner. Let's talk about life. Like maybe they played chess or something like chess, you know? He liked being with John, and his conscience condemned him. He didn't think right. So when Jesus did the miracles, no, 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 this is John the Baptist come back. See our conscience? There is a place when we've rejected the Lord so much, there's no coming back. And that is implied throughout the Bible. And Pastor Chuck Smith at Calvary used to talk about this. There's a line so far, and we don't know where it is, where people cross it and they never come back. And see, the thing for us is we don't know who's crossed that line. So just like Jesus feeding 4,000, what do you got? We do our part, and if someone's crossed that line, that's between them and the Lord. We can never know who's crossed that line is what I'm saying. But there, it would seem very clear in the scriptures that God gives people over. He said that Ephraim was given over to, to their idols. Leave them alone. Oh my goodness, God forbid that God would say of someone we love and care about given over to their sins and idolatry, leave them alone. They're happy in their sin. They're like the dwarves in the Chronicles of Narnia. The dwarves are for the dwarves and they're going to go the way they go. And they're going to be sitting at a feast and it's going to taste like cardboard to them in the last battle. The dwarves are for the dwarves. There's people like that. They're just, they're, they're given over. And can you see here? Jesus said, there's no sign for this generation. I have no sign for these guys. And what did Jesus do when he stood before Herod the Tetrarch? Remember what he did? Nothing. Herod's like, hey, do something special. One of your magic tricks. Jesus spoke not one word. And when the Pharisees came to him and said, Herod's after you, he said, you tell that fox. The only sign he'll get from me is on the third day I'll be raised up. John the Baptist called the Pharisees snakes, and Jesus called Herod the Tetrarch a fox, like a cunning, crafty fox. A politician of the most cunning nature with full brutality. What's your point, Pastor Joey? My point is this. These guys crossed the line. Jesus is still feeding 4,000 and multiplying loaves. One loaf, one basket. He's still going to open the eyes of the blind and open the hearing, raise the dead. He's, he's still going to do things, but not for them. They crossed the line. Romans 1 talks about crossing the line, having a seared conscience, being, being given over to depravity and not able to come back from it. It's so crucial that we seek the voice of the Lord and we respond to the voice of the Lord, especially when it's correcting us. That's perhaps the most important time because the scripture is given that we be thoroughly equipped for every good work and it equips us for instruction, correction and reproof in righteousness. We want the Lord to correct us. We want to be sensitive to immediately like, man, I did not handle that. You just immediately to make some when you realize like, why did I say that? Hey, I'm really sorry I said that. Why did I do that? Hey, listen, I'm sorry. Come back. I'm really sorry about that. You know, like that's how we want to be because the Lord wants to make us like him. And to do that, he's got to be able to correct us. And we got to be teachable through his word and to the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit in a consciousness of God as we walk through our day. And we don't want to harden our heart. He left them. I mean, I mean, if you really consider verse 11, they came to dispute and they're testing him. God's not accountable to anybody. We're accountable to him. And he said, there's, there's no sign for you. It's over for you. And he left them. And the only thing that they were left for was an example to the apostles and the disciples to not be that. See, the Pharisees were about the business of religion in a political way. So they were buddied up with Herod. Religion was politics to them, controlling people, money. It wasn't compassion, empathy, love, humility, serving, forgiving. It was the exact opposite. These the leaven of the Pharisees was the same as the leaven of Caesar. Rule, conquer, lord over. But Jesus said it will not be so with you for the greatest in the kingdom of God is a servant of all. And he tells his apostles, beware. And so we need to beware of making our relationship with the Lord political with an agenda for personal gain. We need to beware of testing the Lord. Do not test the Lord and provoking the Lord. Our liberty is for serving the Lord. And our life is so short. It just keeps moving along. And you can't stop the seasons and the changes that come in your life as you you just go through the timeline. And we want to fulfill everything God has for us. Take heed, Jesus said. These guys, they wouldn't listen yesterday, and therefore there's nothing for them to hear today. And they've been given over, and they're not going to hear anything tomorrow either. Because there's nothing more to say except to believe in Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, there's nothing else to say. So... It's a strong exhortation to us. As happy as the seven baskets are, this is more like very sobering return to earth. Now we read on in verse 17. So, excuse me, verse 16. So he said, take heed. So we broke the conversation and now verse 16 picks up. And they, the apostles, the disciples, reason among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? But Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? I mean, by and large, Jesus really, when you see the dialogue between him and Peter Peter, Thomas Thomas put your hands in here doubt no more you know it's like hey blessed are you Thomas because you see and believe but how much more blessed are those who having not seen believe like when you you see Jesus in most of his interactions with the disciples before his death burial and resurrection and after there's a very uh you're like hey like just working with you trying to help you understand these things and, and get this but I'll tell you what right here this context is pretty strong isn't it Nine questions, he asked and if you are counting. Nine questions. And the last one, it says, how is it you do not understand? Again, I'm going to go back to parents with kids, <laughs> particularly adult kids. Like, how do you not get this? Okay, let's walk through this one more time. This is how it works. Nine questions you do not find anywhere else in the scriptures where Jesus is talking to the disciples And he throws down nine questions contextually in reproof for his 12 apostles who will change the world after the day of Pentecost. So it gets our attention. And it really, the last question is the closer question. How is it that you do not understand? He expected them to understand. It says their hearts were so hard. So when Jesus did the miracle of feeding the 5,000 and gave 12 baskets for 12 apostles, they missed it. And then when he fed the 7,000, excuse me, the 4,000 with seven loaves and there's seven baskets, they missed it. The whole idea of the supernatural, the multiplication, that God is able to do great things with our availability, they missed it. So when he says, beware the leaven of Herod, and the Pharisees are like, is it because we didn't bring bread? Because, of course, leaven is yeast. It's what causes bread to rise and affects everything. And he's like, bread, what What are we talking about bread? Why are we talking about Bread? I'm talking about doctrine. I'm talking about the human experience. I'm talking about false teaching and motives and agendas. You're talking about bread? Like, that's the context. When we fed 5,000, what do we have? 12 baskets. When we fed 4,000, we have seven baskets. Do you not yet perceive, which brings up a very simple application, are we receiving and discerning what Jesus is teaching us in our life right now? On March 19th, 2019. What God, because God's always teaching us, are we receiving, are we perceiving, discerning, and receiving what God is looking to teach us in our lives right now? It's just, you know what it goes back to? When I lived in Vermont and worked at the Sheraton Hotel, pastoring the Calvary Chapel there in Burlington, when we did room service, we delivered that food, and there was a little card that says, how are we doing? How was your food? How was your experience? Do you have suggestions? That's just being candid in 1995 in the food you know, industry. People would give feedback. And it fascinated me how in the training that I went through last year before I retired as a, as a surf coach, that how they put so much emphasis on being teachable and being coachable. And breaking down game film and learning things. And actually, I must say, probably the, large, the number one benefit I got from being involved with the program was I, as I studied different successful sports programs and guys like Bill Belichick and Tom Brady with the Patriots, how they break down all this game film, they break down all game film. They break it down this way, that way. There wasn't anything that they did. They were so prepared that that's when I began to listen to my studies, every one of them. I used to just listen to studies that would go on K-Wave and figure out, oh, that's a waste of time, edit that. And, you know, Alex is my witness because we did all these projects together. And after a while, like, you know what, if I just don't say that when I'm teaching, then I don't have to edit it later on and make more work for us. So I need to filter these things before I say them so there's not more work afterwards. And I can honestly say, like, the studies got better. And I'm listening to studies from three years ago, getting ready for the MP3 project. I'm like, oh, man, geez, Lord. You're so merciful. I want to tell you I'm really sorry, by the way, for those studies, just so you know. You can pick any one that it bothered you. I'm going through John right now from three years ago. I'm just like, oh, gosh. Oh, I don't even know if I can save these, but I'm going to try. Uh, but, you know, we're all, often our most hardest critic, right? No one wants to hear their voice on a phone machine, which no one has anymore. But you know what I'm saying. Like, you just It's hard. Game film's hard to watch. But you want to learn from it. And I do believe I'm a better teacher in 2019 than I was in 2018 because I've spent a lot of time breaking down game film. It's, I literally drive around with me in the car. I'm listening to stays from two years ago, Matthew three years ago. I've got edit number two in the Adobe work, uh, workshop stuff, the edits. You know, it takes me sometimes 15 minutes to edit something one sentence because I can't quite, uh, why do I even say that? So it's like, do you not yet perceive We want to learn the lessons. We want to be candid before ourselves and the Lord, and we want to learn the lessons. We want to receive what the Lord's showing us. We want to grow and learn, and we want to get better at what we do. We want to be challenged and stretched in our relationship with the Lord, in our human relationships we want to grow and be more the husband or the wife or the single person or the widow or whatever widow or whatever we are we want to become more of who we're meant to be we want a better version of that in 2019 than who we were in 2018 and that's exactly what the holy spirit wants to do too so when we say your kingdom come your will be done let me tell you that's consistent with god's will that there's a better version of you with more jesus more of the spirit and less of the flesh than you you're meant to be before the fall and being restored in a post-fallen world for the future world to come for thine is the kingdom and the glory now and forever. So when you're candid and you're learning from your circumstances, you're like, what is going on here, Lord? And you're putting it before the Lord and you're inviting him to show you things and you grow and learn. That's, that's how you're going to get better. And like I said, it's before just the, the passion by which the, the U S Olympic committee trains coaches and all the sports nutritionists and the physical therapists and the athletic surgeons and all these sports surgeons and, and the passion that they put into their effort and the millions of dollars that they put in their effort to go for the gold, I literally just concluded they're doing all this for this dimension. How much more should I be doing for the next dimension while I'm in this dimension? Which is biblical because 1 Corinthians 9 says that they run for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Whatever you do is under the Lord. Do it with all your heart. As unto the Lord, not unto men. How is it that you do not understand? I don't want to be rolling forward in the spring of 2019 with not understanding that plan of God in my life. That work of God in my heart. Those lessons of God through my life to bless and benefit others. I want to understand. I want to get it. And I want to be right, right there. I don't want to be dull of hearing and hard of heart, do you? I mean, this is our last year. Don't you want to just pour it on? I want to be just so open, and I want to be like Jesus, and I want to be flowing in Jesus to the benefit of humanity. And I believe most of you do too. We pick it up, so don't miss it. Be candid. Give the Lord time to speak to you. Give the Lord time to show you things. Give Give him time to really... Reflect upon things. Take time to reflect upon things. Get a journal. Write down stuff. Think about what's going on. Think about relationships. Think about your job. Think about people you've had contact with. Think about the local church. Think about the universal church, the Calvary movement, the Baptist movement, whatever. Think about, break it down. I break down goals every week. I break down evaluation of things every week. I mean, grow, learn. I want the Lord to say, you get it. You get it. Hey, you got the call up like baseball. You're double A. Hey, you got the call up. They're calling you up to the big A. Woo, got it, baby. What's up? Like the rookie, you know, like you show up and there you are. If you saw the movie, you know what I'm talking about. I want, I want the call up, man. I want, I want more of what the Lord has because I'm getting it. And so do you. We pick it up now in verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida and they uh, brought him a blind man to him and he begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town And when he had spit in his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hand on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. This is an unusual story. This is very kind of quick, compact. It's unique. And that's what stands out to me. Just touching on this briefly, it is unique. Jesus healed all kinds of people and he healed them different ways. It's like the book of Acts. You don't see any set template other than the consistency of God's character and the boundaries of his word revealed it, revealing his character. God just, from healing handkerchiefs to whatever it might be, raising the dead to Christians being executed, you get it all in the book of Acts. There's just no, there's a, a uniqueness and a personalness. And, and just even how Jesus healed this man, to me, this blind man is very interesting that uh, he chose to spit and put his spit on the man's eyes, which is unusual. Again, though, like Jesus touching the leper, you would never touch a leper because lepers are defiled. But see, here's the point about Jesus. He's not defiled by the leper. He cleanses the leper. You see, we don't defile Jesus. God is light and him is no darkness at all. So my, I touch Jesus. I don't give him defilement. He gives me cleansing and you too we got to keep that in mind. So like one of the, the, the most disrespectful forms globally in all cultures towards someone is to spit on them or, or show that disdain. But here Jesus' spit is not defying anybody. It's not showing disdain. It's showing mercy. And his spit is healing the man. But isn't it interesting that he doesn't get him on the first shot? I see trees. There's a, of, there's a lot of Bible studies about this text. Like some people when they get saved, they still just see trees. They don't see people. When we're born again, we need to see people. We want to see people the way God sees people. We don't want to see people like plants. I love my plants. I care about plants. I seem to not, I'm about 50-50 with plants. I care about the world. I do. I like forest. You know, I do. I don't, Yeah, it's like saying like, so, but it's people. People are the crown jewel and Jesus died for people. And it's very interesting when he says, I see people like trees, like kind of like trees. And some people, that's what they see when they see people. They see moving trees. They don't see people creating the image of God with the potential for the things of God when they've been touched and transformed by God. So that's one of the applications a lot of people give when they teach this text. But what really stands out to me is that Jesus touched him a second time. He saw him clearly, which brings up a good point. Sometimes what God God does in your life is incremental. He doesn't do it all at once. Now, this all happened within a few moments, right? But why did he do it that way? Really, like, because we read... In other passages he healed everybody he immediately healed them he spoke healing like to you know the, the demon-possessed daughter of the woman the Phoenician Phoenician woman last week God's gonna do what he wants to do in your life to for you personally it's like when Peter when Jesus told Peter when you're older you'll go where you don't want to go and Peter's like well what about John and Jesus said don't worry about John I got John That's what I love about, you know, the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. It's the same thing because Aslan, the Lion, who represents Jesus, when anyone asks about someone else, like Lucy's asking about Edmund, he's like, hey, hey, what I got for Edmunds? what I got for Edmund. What I got for you, I got for you. That's not your business. That's, That's my business. Who are you to judge another servant? Like, just let God do his business. But I just think it's interesting that it's very unique and personal how I healed this man. And I just move on from the saying, let God be unique and personal for you because you're unique and personal, and there's no one like you. There's no one like you. Don't compare your calling to anyone else's calling. Do not compare what God's doing in your life to anyone else's life. There's no one like you. And what God wants to do in you is special for just you and no one else can fulfill it. And it's not meant to be what he's doing in someone else because that's what he's doing in them. When Greg Glory used to teach Monday nights at Calvary Costa Mesa and he moved on to start like OC, Orange County and all that stuff or Harvest OC, Brian Broderson came in on Monday nights to replace Greg Glory. Now, you couldn't get two more contrasting personalities, probably, than in the pulpit than Greg Laurie and Brian Broderson, if you know these men. And then eventually, Brian turned Monday night over to us. We had formerly been Thursday night, and they moved us into Monday night and want us to be more evangelistic. And, but I can tell you one thing. When I got in there on Monday nights, I did not try to be Greg Laurie. In fact, in 2000, Chuck had me fill in for Greg Laurie on a Monday night, and that full sanctuary knew one thing. That guy is not Greg Laurie. There's some similarities, but he is definitely not Greg Laurie. And uh, just be you and let God do what he does in you, uniquely for you. And don't get caught up with that. It's not what he's doing in someone else or what you think he should be doing. If he wants to bring you partial sight instead of full sight, let him spit in your eyes and tell him what you see. And let him do the next thing and let it be for you. And if he tells you, some people, he said, go tell everyone what I did for you. And here he says, you just go. It's like, wow. What is that? It's personal is what it is. It's personal for the individual. God is personal. He knows the hairs on our head. Let him be unique and personal for you. Joy Brand does not try to be anyone other than Joy Brand. I got my hands full being me. (laughs) And you got your hands full being you. Let let, let God be you in you. And make you the best you. To do in and through you the work of art he's created you to be. That's, That's the bottom line verse 26 we read on. Then he, uh, uh, verse 27, he said, now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered John the Baptist, but some said Elijah, others, one of the prophets, and he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is, of course, a very famous passage in the New Testament, in the other Gospels as well. In the other Gospels, we're told that, Jesus said, Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was a divine revelation. And I would just say this about the opinions of Jesus. Everyone has opinions of Jesus, who he is, what he taught, what he did, his character, where he's at, if he's coming again, all these things. And that's why I do like to quote the passage from Romans, let God be true and every man a liar. So let's make this clear. Jesus is who he is. He's the eternal God. He's the eternal Son of God. The entire universe, as we understand it, time, space, and matter, was made by him, through him, in him, and for him. This entire universe is held together by Jesus Christ from the what they call the atomic glue in the science world. The microscopic world that we can't see is held together by Jesus to the planets and suns that are a thousand times bigger than our sun out there in outer space, the expanding universe that's losing energy, is expanding, and Jesus is holding it all together. And he came to this earth, this planet, this planet, the sustainable planet, the crown jewel of the universe, where he made Adam and Eve the head of our race. And he called him the son of God, Adam. That's how he's called in the Gospel of Luke in the genealogy. He was made in God's image to have fellowship with God. And that fellowship was broken through sin. And Jesus came as the second Adam and redeemed all of us the first Adam, from the first Adam. And he came here to die on that cross and to fulfill the prophecies. And he rose from the grave because he's God and death could not hold him down and the Holy One would not undergo corruption. And he rose from the grave and established historical fact. And he ascended into heaven and established historical fact. He transcended dimensions, a fact. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father in power, in glory, and ever lives to intercede for each one of us. A fact based upon faith and his promises. And he's there on our behalf And he's going to come for you and I as a good shepherd when we breathe our last and transcend this dimension into eternity. Because the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he's coming for us. And and we were singing the song with Jack earlier, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. And he's going to do that. He's coming again. Jesus is coming again. He has promised that. And whatever people want to divide over within the Bible, the content within the Bible is absolutely clear of anyone that reads it at face value that Jesus is coming again. He is who he is. He's the son of God. He is light, and in him is the light of men. And there's no evil within him. There is no darkness. He is at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished the redemptive work of the gospel, and he's coming again. That's Jesus. That's the right Jesus. There's a lot of other different Jesuses. We walk out these doors, there's a lot of other Jesuses. There's different Jesuses. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus who we're worshiping here and serving here. Let there be no misunderstanding. And the fact that you're at church on Tuesday night means that that Jesus is working in your life and drawing you to himself. Blessed are you sitting in the pews at WG tonight because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. And we're responding. If you hear his voice, then we respond to the gospel this night because that's who we serve. He's the creator of the universe and he's the savior of the world, but he must become personal savior. For as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. It is through that receiving. And what Herod the Tetrarch thinks, that he's John the Baptist, or people think this or that, it does not matter. He is who he is. And what we need to be mindful of is the things of God, not the things of men. And that little reproof for Peter, Peter meant well. He just didn't. You know, Sometimes God tells you what you don't want to hear, like, oh, no, no I don't like that. And you want to pull God aside privately, like, hey, God, I'm just thinking in this universe, I might have the better call on this play. And he might reprove you publicly before your peer group and say, no you're not mindful of the things of God. Sometimes we just get crushed to be more mindful of the things of God. And it is what it is. So a little simple application. He is who he is. And we want to align our lives, our passions, our vision, our goals, our objectives, our very breath of air to be mindful of the things of God, to be yoked with him and his purpose in sustaining our life and working in our life. And last but not least, those powerful words where he says this in verse 34. When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his father with the holy angels. The world and the devil would want us to be ashamed of Jesus. But just remember this, whatever things are true, virtuous, praiseworthy, honorable, those are the things of Jesus. Everything that's perfect and right is in the character and the identity and the work of Jesus in our life. I mean, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are all good things. But the devil likes to take people with seared their conscience, and the seared conscience calls good evil and evil good. So suddenly adultery and lewdness and murder and thefts become good and justified. Existentialism seems right to me. But you see, that's where that conscience we were talking about earlier, the conscience that let God be true to every man a liar. And Everything Jesus does is good. There is nothing to be ashamed of concerning his work in our life. It's a good work. It's a restoration work. Everything Jesus Christ does is good. It's good for time and it's good for eternity. It's good. The only thing that anyone should be ashamed of is evil and what takes place under the deception of the father of lies. There are a lot of people doing very evil things, and they're doing them openly and flagrantly. They're the ones that should be ashamed. If they want to shame us for our identity in Christ, whether we're in a country that doesn't allow the gospel or the preaching of the gospel, like much of the Middle East or huge areas of Asia, that's their business. But man, we should never be ashamed. Look what Jesus said. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. I don't want him to be ashamed of me at his coming. I want him to be bragging about me like Job in Job chapter one. He's bragging about me and bragging about you. Let the world be ashamed of sin and darkness and the evil that sin, sinful men and women uh, perpetuate upon one another. Let them be ashamed. Let them be ashamed of what's done in the darkness. Let us be unashamed. Like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God uh, to offer salvation to the Jew first and then the Gentile. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's nothing to be ashamed of when we're growing in the Lord and going forward in the Lord. The world and sin should be ashamed. And by the way, where he says, deny yourself, take up your cross. Whoever loses life for my sake, verse 35, shall save it. And what will you give for your soul? So the last reminder on this night, in Jesus, we are going to glory. We're not leaving it. It's so funny because because my background as a pro surfer, people are like, you've been surfing, how's the surf? I'm like, I don't really surf. I don't care to surf. I, I won the pipe master's I was on the cover of the magazines and I'm in the Hall of Fame. I don't care to surf. My best surfing days are about 30 years behind me. The last time I surfed really good was in the 80s when K-Rock was playing the Pretenders. It was a long time ago. I don't, I don't surf that good. I mean, I can still have fun surfing. Sometimes when it's a Santa Ana swell, I'm like, I should go surfing right now, right? But I don't really, like, I don't care. And my surf career is a fading glory. And the thing that I've calibrated with the coaching being done and having them won the world championship and moved on from all the Olympic stuff, it's like my best coaching is behind me too. Each day I'm getting farther from my glory as a coach. You see, like, so my athletic glory is way back in the 80s. My coaching glory is back to the 2017, maybe a little 2018. We were world champions in 2017. All that glory that you could have, we're leaving behind. I'm just hoping Social Security's there when we get there. You know what I'm saying? I'm just hoping, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. And I say that facetiously, but kind of truthfully. Just so I can get where I need to go when I get there, until I get there. We're going to glory. Each day, in Jesus' name, that you're serving the Lord, you are one day closer to your glory. And as Jim Elliott said, he's no fool who gives it that which he cannot keep the temporal glory, to gain that which you cannot lose, the eternal glory. So WG, woo, we're going to glory. And our best days are in front of us. We are going to glory. We are going to glory. Whatever glory is being left behind, that's the glory of the flesh. We are going to glory. So whatever you're letting go and losing, let it go, because you can't take it with you anyways. Forward, onward, upward, in Jesus' name.